When I had initially started my research on this project, I had went through the Montana Council of Defense's files in the Montana Historical Society's archives. And so um, I drew from primary sources in 15 different counties across the state, trying to get a pretty good dis distribution between East and Western Montana. And um, so one thing that I want to really emphasize in my talk today is that the Montana Council of Defense's efforts, which, as Rich Arstead mentioned in his talk previously, is mostly known for its very um, for its activities of limiting civil liberties um, and encouraging people to support the war through fear to an extent. Um, it also tried to get people to um, participate in various different war efforts through what I call performative patriotism. And this idea is present in its agricultural and economic initiatives before and after the special session. And so I really quickly want to introduce what I mean when I say performative patriotism. And basically, this is the idea where um, patriotism isn't just something where it's enough where you can tacitly consent to or support the war, but you need to back up that idea with your actions. If you could register for the draft, you were supposed to do so. If you couldn't fight overseas, you had to try and support the war by giving your wheat. If you didn't have wheat to give, you would have to buy liberty bonds. And if you couldn't buy liberty bonds, well, then you probably just weren't doing enough to help out the war effort. And so... Um, I really quickly want to reiterate before I get into the meat of the talk that um, when the Montana Council of Defense had formed in April of 1917, it was formed by President Woodrow Wilson's recommendation that councils, uh, excuse me, that states needed to organize councils to try and increase economic and agricultural production. And the Council of Defense did the best that it could by, as Richard previously mentioned, trying to borrow money from different uh, state and national agencies, but also a lot of its funding was supposed to come through the governor's office. And so the Montana Council of Defense prior to 1918 did not have a lot of money to work with. Yet, they did their best to try and help to increase agricultural production. And so I like to sort of introduce this idea with this quote because this sort of outlines the idea of how performative patriotism applies to economics and agriculture. Because when one was a farmer before the war, you were simply trying to get, um, excuse me, to provide food to sell to support your family. But now it's not just sort of an economic duty to help yourself and your family, but really a patriotic obligation to feed the soldiers, to help to make sure that the nation's economy was working as it should. And then additionally, in the last line of the quote, uh, talking about how the council also wanted to make sure that all lines of endeavor in the markets, the farmer, the bank, and the businessman, and the government official, all cooperating for these war efforts. And so this identifies that because Montana was a time of conflict before the war, be it labor conflict, be it conflict between farmers and um, the railroad companies, the Council of Defense wanted to make sure that people knew that there was only one big conflict, and that was the conflict against Germany. And so, in light of this, the council set out to try and best plan its agricultural activities. So it started doing this by conducting surveys in different counties to determine how they could best help farmers. And different counties had different findings. Uh, some counties had reported that they had a very, actually a surplus of wheat from the previous growing season, but others had reported that they were starting to uh, experience um, decreased crop yields because Montana during 1917 started to hit what became one of the worst four-year droughts in the state's history. 
And so it's important to note that this drought was basically covering all of World War I, and therefore the council's agricultural initiatives were very important for Montana's farmers. As soon as they started sending out surveys, they also received requests for monetary assistance as well as for seed grain, capital, and machinery. However, because the council in 1917 did not have the funding to provide these things, they actually ended up trying to cooperate with different sellers in Canada and across the United States to get machinery or grain to farmers. And one thing that's also interesting too is they worked with local banks to try and get credit to farmers who needed it in order to fund themselves. And it's important to note that the um, Council of Defense appealed to banks' sense of patriotism. They basically said that because, uh, in, excuse me, that um, credit had to be loaned out as an emergency wartime measure to farmers who sometimes either had bad credit or no credit, and that they were supposed to be given as much time as possible to try and repay these loans. And um, in light of this, uh, the state, the excuse me, the council also um, lobbied to try and get more funding for farmers, which resulted in the passage of uh, the Food Production Act, which allowed over $2 million for seed to farmers. But this would not take effect until 1918. So for the rest of 1917, farmers needed to try and get by with what they could. Uh, one of the other big importance um, measures that the Council of Defense uh, took in 1917 through the rest of the war was cooperating with local draft boards and sheriff's departments to try and get people to register for the draft. Um, they did so by working with newspapers to promote different draft registration days and also by distributing pamphlets. And so June 5th, 1917 was the first draft registration day. Um, and it required all men who were ably bodied and between the ages of 21 and 31 to register for the draft. And um, before this uh, happened, the Mon or excuse me, the Gallatin County Council of Defense said that in light of our efforts, it will not be difficult to register the complete uh, draft registry population of Gallatin County. And actually, these efforts were largely successful. In Missoula, for example, they were expecting less than 1,000 people to register for the draft. Over 2,000 registered. In Medicine Lake, the registration board actually ran out of draft registration cards, and so they had to write some down on blank slips. So I don't want to say that the Council of Defense's efforts are the only reason why Montana's had such a um, good uh, turnout in draft registration, but their promotion of the initiative certainly did help in that. And then initially, because also I got to include this just because the, the propaganda posters are great. Um, <laughs> One of the biggest initiatives they also helped to support was Liberty Bonds. And so in the same way they promoted the draft through the press, they did the same with Liberty Bonds. But as was mentioned in Elizabeth's presentation, there was already a lot of pressure nationwide and from different um, lower level sort of vigilante groups to pressure people into buying Liberty Bonds. And the council um, tried to promote the sale of Liberty Bonds not before 1918, not being quite as overt as the guys in Billings were, but they employed different people to go out into voting precincts and um, distribute literature about Liberty Bonds. They also worked with banks to make sure that they had the necessary paperwork, and even in some instances, encouraged banks to send out 
pamphlets and propaganda encouraging people to buy Liberty Bonds when they mail them their bank statements. So this idea of performative patriotism really sort of seeped into many different aspects of life in Montana prior to the special session. And, you know, trying to raise money for the war, trying to increase economic production, those are fairly benign goals. But there's also an undercurrent of the somewhat darker turn the council would take later on. So um, this is uh, in a letter to the state secretary, or excuse me, the state council of defense's secretary, Charles D. Greenfield, from the head of the Lincoln County uh, Council of Defense. And he mentions that there was a public school teacher who had basically stated that he didn't think that buying liberty bonds should be required of people because the government itself should be providing to carry on its wars through the taxes that are already being collected. And um, in response to this, the um, secretary of the Montana Council of Defense, who basically had the governor's right ear, said that they would try and do the best they could to remove this person from their um, position as a teacher. Now, um, in the records, it was not clear whether or not they were successful, but the fact that the council wanted to attempt to remove a person from their job because they were considered as not doing their part uh, to the greatest extent they could be is somewhat telling as to what they thought performative patriotism meant. And so before the special session, they had the power to really sort of encourage people to be patriots and to an extent try and scare them away from not doing their part. But they didn't have the power to actually enforce much of anything. And I'm going to really quickly hit the highlights of the special session just so that you have uh, fuller context. So um, basically what we need to worry about in this talk is that the council was legally formalized in the special session, which meant that they received appropriations, including, as Rich had mentioned, money to distribute to farmers. But also they gained the power to pass orders which were legally binding that required Montans to follow different initiatives by the council, and they also received the ability to conduct hearings into people's loyalty. And so these new powers really sort of changed the way that the council enforced performative patriotism, because no longer could they just incentivize patriotism, but they also gained the powers to punish people who were not exhibiting the proper amount of patriotism. And this becomes apparent in the council's economic and agricultural activities, as well as the more famous Sedition Act activities. So, for example, order number two was meant to crack down on what the council refers to as vagrants, people who weren't working five days a week in a legitimate occupation. And in one letter from the Park County Council of Defense uh, to the state council, they mentioned that basically we're trying to go after people who, quote, should work and earn their own living instead of mooching on their friends or living off of their parents or other relatives, which might be one of the few times the word mooching is actually used in a legal document. <laughs> and um, from there, it's important to note that the vagrants or the people who were mooching who weren't doing their part were oftentimes the people who were at the lowest rungs of society. Um, in a different document, the council singles out the fact that there are many different vagrants who are known to be going about to different houses of prostitution and spending too much time in the pool halls, and that we need to make sure that these young men are out in the fields or out fighting instead of being involved in these sorts of activities. And actually, Custer County, under this order, even used this as uh, justification to close down every brothel in the county. So when we say that we're trying to cut down on vagrants, it's kind of important to note that the words useful and legitimate occupation 
it's kind of hard to tell how we define that. And so the council took a very broad view of how they would enforce this article. But that also led to some confusion. Uh, the council in Muscle Shell actually reported that many different people um, had called the council confused as to whether or not they were in a legitimate occupation. And um, for example, they received calls from a bartender who wasn't sure if he had to go out and work in the fields, even though he was not physically capable of doing so, but he thought under the order he had to. And um, then also the Muscle Shell County of Defense even went so far as to ask whether or not they could take saloon owners, whether they could take store clerks, or possibly even a few lawyers, and lock them up if they were not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they asked if they could, you know, either get these, force these people to work or lock them up, take them away, if they did not. And in response, the state council said what we're probably all thinking. Uh, Secretary Charles Greenfield wrote, I doubt very much if it would be wise to forcibly enlist land agents or lawyers in work in the fields, as they would probably resist and get an injunction out against you and place your counsel in an unenviable position. But in that same letter, he concluded, however, if there are really slackers in your town or community who come under the provisions of order number two, it is your duty and you have the power and authority to act by imprisoning these people. Yeah. And so this is kind of skipped over the slide in accident, but this is once again reasserting that there was much confusion as to what is a legitimate occupation and what is not. Um, later on in the war, um, when we were facing a agri uh, excuse me, a labor shortage in the fields, a uh, very similar order called work or fight was passed, where it more clearly tried to define what it meant to be a vagrant or an idler. So basically all able-bodied people who could go to work in the fields were supposed to do so. However, um, as with uh, order number two, um, many people actually resisted this idea. And um, in the same way that order number two encouraged people to um, be picked up by the state council, or excuse me, the county councils and be thrown in jail, the same thing did happen with worker fights. And um, in the interest of time, I'm going to sort of breeze over worker fight. But um, it's important to note that in light of all of these other economic activities and enforcing the Sedition Act, the county and state councils of defense were also still continuing the agricultural activities that they had um, completed before the war. So, um, but one thing to note here is that while more money was being given to farmers because the state was so hard hit by drought, many farmers did not have the funds to pay back the loans they had received and for example, in Toole County, which had suffered a complete crop failure, um, the head of the Toole County Council of Defense uh, appealed to the state council to try and encourage banks to um, increase the length of uh, farmers' time to pay back loans by a year or more. Because once again, this is a time when we're all struggling in the war and we all need to be trying to make sure that we're making sure that the Huns don't win. And if wheat's going to win the war, you need farmers to be able to actually grow that wheat. And so in light of the fact that the state was going through a drought, uh, farmers were struggling, and people were uh, being forced to ration food, the council also um, cracked down on people who were hoarding food. And so um, 
one thing that's pretty interesting is the fact that um, they sort of sell this in the same way that they sold previous ideas. Um, so Jacob Dam, who was a farmer, had hid several, as he claimed, about a year or so's worth of supplies on his property. And Mrs. Phillips, a local teacher, who he supposedly bragged to about his um, sort of store of food, said that while he was explaining the fact that he had so much food left over, he was actively taking a piece of chalk and drawing out on the floor the fact that Germany was going to come and conquer the US and that he knew it was happening. So that's why he was hoarding his food. And um, when the state council heard about this, they encouraged an investigation into Dam's loyalty to be completed. And they did actually find that uh, despite Phillips' statement, there was no actual evidence of him uh, uttering seditious remarks or possibly being tried under the Sedition Act, but they did note that um, both the sh local sheriff's office and the community council will keep this matter in mind and make further investigation if it can be done. So even though they found that they could not try this man under the Sedition Act, they still wanted to try and go after him because he had been hoarding wheat, allegedly. And then, of course, because once again these propaganda posters are so insane, um, the council made many efforts, uh, continued efforts, to get people to buy liberty bonds. But, as with happened in Billings, interestingly, before the Sedition Act was passed, um, the council tried to claim that people who were not buying liberty bonds were actively pro-German. So, for example, and this is a German last name, so I'll totally butcher it, but um, in uh, Sheridan County, a man by the name of J.S. Geyser, Geyser, I'm just going to say Geyser, I guess, um, reportedly had advised and preached against the buying of bonds. And the evidence was very clear that he had done so and that he had made also statements against the purchase of war thrift stamps. And uh, it's important to note that also in this same letter the council mentions he was uh, given a $5,000 bond if he wanted to be released from the county jail, which he immediately paid. So he had the financial means to buy liberty bonds, but he was advocating against doing so. And so this is an instance where someone has not, you know, actively tried to aid the Germans, but he's simply not participating in the U.S.'s war efforts. And in light of this, the um, council held a hearing looking into his um, loyalty. And while, once again, as with Jacob Dam, they did not find he was guilty of sedition, um, the state council of defense wrote to the Sheridan County Council that, quote, you are right, I think, in your statement that an apology from Dr. Geyser, as was stipulated by the results of his hearing, would not be sincere. And I believe you are also right when you say that this violation of the law should be prosecuted vigorously in whatever way it can be. And I sincerely hope that you people will be able to make this case stick because an example of this sort is an excellent thing on others who feel as Dr. Geyser apparently does. And so they attempted to try different people across the state who were not buying liberty bonds under the Sedition Act. And once they found they could not do that, they tried to go with, as what happened in Billings, publicly censoring these people. So 
Um, in the Rivoli County Council Defense's records, I actually found a short copy of a briefing of a um, hearing transcript that was brought against three different money slackers, as they were called. So, yes, slacker is the term for someone who is not doing their part in buying liberty bonds. And um, once again, that's a legalese term, I guess, in the same way that mooching is. But um, it was being, quote, alleged that they were money slackers and that they failed to contribute any financial aid towards the prosecution and winning of the present war in which the United States of America is engaged. And all were present in the time and place set for the hearing. So these men attended the hearing, and ultimately the council found that, one, all of the persons above named, the people who were tried, were and are financially able to contribute to the War Service League and purchase liberty bonds. And two, that none of the parties contributed at the time that they were tried for this. However, one contributed a small amount between the time of the service and the citation of this hearing. And the council concluded saying that from said findings of all said parties, they are money slackers and are such deserving of public censure. And so it's important to note that they had attempted to try money slackers under the Sedition Act, but ultimately found that when they couldn't do that, they could at least use their power that they had in the media and that they had over public opinion to at least publicly shame these people. And so um, I just want to stipulate that there are so many different ways in which the Council of Defense did enforce this idea of performative patriotism throughout the war, but you know, there's also six linear, or 19, excuse me, linear feet of records in the Montana Council of County of Defense's records. So there's a lot to cover, and I think that, for me at least, its agricultural and economic initiatives really do show the value that the council placed on the idea of actively supporting the war and the idea that people who were not actively supporting the war were pro-German. Thank you.